Hi, this is Laird Barron, and you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Hey everybody, this is John. And this is Vince. And you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Creating legends one die at a time. Hey, this is Leah Bond, and thank you so much for listening today. Um, Laird, your reputation precedes you. How long have you been writing, sir? And I'm probably going to repeat many questions you've heard before, but just for those who do not know. Oh, excellent. Uh, actually, I've been writing since I uh, was about five years old. Uh, professionally, though, I've been writing for about 15, uh, 16 years. Mm-hmm. But I got, an, I got an early start. I, uh, I actually started writing before I, before I could read, before I had learned much more than a few letters of the alphabet. I just had a, uh, a drive to do it. And, uh, you know, so I, I would uh, draw pictures and then try to, try to create stories around them. And uh, I learned to read very early and, and uh, started actually writing uh, after you know intelligibly at this point after that that's awesome now I know that you have many works and quite a large fan base um, but today what brings us together is your newest works with to chase and could you tell us a little bit more about that Swift to chase is um, the beginning of a new trilogy I <clears throat> From the very beginning, when I first started publishing back in 2001, I sold my first story to uh, Gordon Van Gelder, uh, who was the owner and editor of Fantasy Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. And shortly after that, we had lunch at a convention, and he, he said, you know, I've been referring to you as a horror author, and how do you feel about that? Some people, you know, this is after the golden age, this is after the collapse of uh, category horror, commercial horror back in the late 80s, early 90s. And in some camps, horror was not necessarily a positive way to, you know, a horror writer wasn't necessarily what you wanted to be identified as. I said, no, I, I grew up reading horror uh, amongst many other things, and I, I enjoy it. I, I plan on sticking with that mode. And his advice at the time was to, to do that. He said, that's excellent. If that's what you like to write, he says, you know, he said one of the things you should do is, is sort of create an identity for yourself, and you can always branch out from there. But it's better for a new writer to sort of perfect, <clears throat> to perfect kind of a mode, uh, and 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 build and build an identity, and, and that's what I did. And so the first three collections that I published, uh, beginning with the Imago sequence back in two thousand and seven, uh, there was Occultation uh, in two thousand and ten, and the beautiful mm-hmm. thing that awaits us all in two thousand and thirteen. And those three books, sort of, the stories are sort of interrelated, but you could pick up anywhere. It doesn't really, you know, and. It, even with my stories that that basically have happened in an episodic fashion or sequential, I've always tried to write them in such a way that you really don't need to read the the previous stories or the or or uh, whatever to to get something out of them. But nonetheless, they kind of tie together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that was sort of my cosmic horror trilogy. The Swift to Chase is sort of sort of more, sort of the the mark uh, the demarcation from that mode, the cosmic horror mode. I'm kind of sliding into a more weird fiction uh, welded with uh, um, 
oh slasher psychological horror that kind of a little bit of science fiction we were talking about before the show uh, ears prick yeah. up as a science fiction story but one thing that these stories have in common and the two volumes that are going to fall over the next few years is that they're even more closely tied together as stories and once again you should be able because i published them in anthologies most of these stories will be reprints swift to chase yeah, it, go ahead it seems to be a collection spanning four years yes. from 2012 to 2016 Right. Um, and and what you had touched on with the episodic nature of it, um, I kind of jumped in in the middle, I guess, with the with the piece that was earlier published in Autumn Cthulhu. That would have been an introduction, my introduction to writing directly from you. Um, I'm not a stranger to your writing because I mean I I, I read and loved the anthology um, the children of old leech right I absolutely loved it and I I'm so glad that I called it it what it did win a few awards did it not I can't remember what it won it was up for a few things and yeah. I was really proud of um, Ross and Justin they did it and of course the the writers they really did a bunch of great stories but it was a <coughs> it was a well done a piece of work and, and a very nice the hardcover is absolutely beautiful mm -hmm. absolutely um but yeah uh oh gosh what was what was i gonna say oh i was gonna say something oh the the andy kaufman tale yeah because i jumped in with the andy kaufman creeping through the trees tale <laughs> and it, and it wasn't i and it wasn't until i actually hit it again that I realized, oh, the and and I started to pinpoint and recognize some of the characters of this beautiful community that you had created, and uh, yeah, I'm so glad to see that you've taken and expanded on some of those characters, like Jessica. I'm I'm just so pleased with with you expanding on Jessica. Um, because she's a, she is a great character, and where she goes and what she does, you've just done a fantastic job with that, sir. Oh well, thank you very much. It's a, good, a great compliment. Um, she's one of my favorite characters that I've created, and she's a little different. You know, I I really like the hard-boiled protagonist, and mm -hmm. I sort of do meditations. You know, the various types. I have several. I have a yakuza enforcer that I'm writing a series about. I just sold. Um, the first two books of a series to Putnam books about um, an ex hitman from Alaska. And of course I have, I've written about Pinkertons and, and arm breakers and all that kind of stuff. And, and an assortment of other characters that sort of find themselves in hard boiled or more kind of situations. But Jessica is just a regular person who, you know, she was not a, she was not necessarily, a, you know, a, um, a hard boiled figure, uh, at the start of her of her character arc, uh, which actually began in uh, a story called Termination Dust that I wrote for Ross Lockhart for his Ripper mm -hmm. anthology a few years ago, and that one it was an ensemble it's an ensemble cast and she mm -hmm. was I was never going to write about those characters again necessarily, but I really enjoyed writing about her so much in that and she was one of one voice among many and I enjoyed it so much I, I said to myself what what happened to her though. You know, I kind of talk about what happens to her ultimately in that story, but there's years, you know, yes. there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a flash forward in that story where you go from her being in her thirties 
and she survived the massacre and, and, and put down the killer, you know, the final girl, the final girl scenario. And then there's a scene where she's in her seventies at the end. And I said to myself, you know, this, this can't, there's, there's stuff that happens in the middle. And so I'm, I'm building on that as we speak. Excellent. Um, one of the things that I did want to ask regarding the massacre, was that in any way inspired by the 1983 incident regarding Lewis Hastings? Uh, is that the McCarthy incident you're talking about? The Hastings? I, I believe Lewis so. Hastings? Yeah, uh, actually, I can't remember what the guy's name was. Hold on a second. Lewis Hastings, because the... Yeah. Yep, that's the one. Um, I, but I try to change everything to where it's not. It is and it isn't. Yeah. One of the incidents that is, what's kind of interesting is, is that toward the end of that story, there's an allusion to that incident. The, um, one of the characters talks about how he had been shot. He'd been shot mm -hmm. in the head many years before in a massacre. He had survived a massacre. And that's yes. the part of the story that was based on the McCarthy incident. The, mm -hmm. the massacre in the apartment building isn't based on anything in and of itself isn't based on anything at all but the apartment complex is a real place. Um, or I should say, yes, it's based on a real place. It's based on a, a, an apartment complex in Whittier, Alaska. Matter of fact, Eagle Talon is very, it's different. It's my, it's my take on it, but it's very, very much based on a small uh, port town in the mountains. It's, it's surrounded by mountains. It's, got, it's, you know, it's at sea level, obviously, but there's giant mountains that just rise up, peaks that rise up all around and kind of lock it in. And the only way to get there, there's a tunnel through the mountains that the highway goes through and the railroad or to come in uh, by ship. But they get, they get snowed in, at least back in the day. As a matter of fact, I think one of the um, reality shows dealing with life up in Alaska had an episode in Whittier. And it's a very beautiful in the summer and really forbidding in the winter. But what always struck me even when I was living up in Alaska many years ago is it's a town of a few hundred people at the time. Almost everybody lives in a, you know, like the seven-story apartment building. Uh, it may actually be bigger than that, maybe 14 stories. I have to go back and look at my notes. But the point is, is that everyone in town lives there, except for just a handful of people. And so um, I, I may actually put some more stories in that. Obviously, it burned down and <laughs> terminated. <laughs> I said I said another story in that apartment building set in the '70s that I sold to Christopher Golden. Uh, it was for his uh, vampire anthology, "Seize the Night." Different okay. characters, nothing related, but uh, but the apartment building is there. I, I do have an affinity for old, sort of forbidding, crumbling built you know structures, uh, and I really like the idea of the self. I've always been fascinated with the self-contained, you know, the structure where it has its own bar and it has its own ecosystem almost. And people. You may have to go out and get groceries or go see a doctor, but pretty much everything else is there for them. I've always found that to be kind of a fascinating um, environment. Little microcosm, everything yeah. right there. Yeah, and a, a different kind of person lives there. I found that people who live in apartment complexes for you know for ages, it's they have a different way of looking at life and a different way of interacting with their environment than people who live in the suburbs or people who live in just a regular apartment building, the transient kind of thing. There's, there's a really interesting dynamic with people who live in a boarding house long-term or they live in a, um, you know, one of these hotels that have been converted to like, you know, rent control uh, apartment uh, housing. They just, it's it's a different, there's just something slightly different about that environment. And so I've, I may have to explore, explore that some more. So I've, I've written a couple stories 
set in those, or three stories now set in those locations. And I really, actually four, because I was looking back, but Procession of Black Sloth, one of my early stories is set in a compound in Hong Kong uh, where the expatriates all live. Um, and I don't know, it's just something I keep coming back to that periodically and I, I like it. Okay. Uh, what, another thing that I really appreciated about, about this book was that you slide seamlessly from perspective to perspective, not just from character to character, but from third person to first person to observer. You, you just slide really, really seamlessly into those different modes. And it aids greatly in getting into it and and me trying to see what's the next line, what's the, what's the, I'm going to turn the page, you know, I, I'm and I'm hooked. It's, it's wonderful. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because my earlier collections, you know, most of my earlier stories are all either first person or third person. A couple times I, I, I messed around with um, second person, but a lot of the stories that I've written over the last four or five years have, I've experimented uh, quite a bit. When I say experimented, you know, it's, it's an experiment, you know, experiment for me. Obviously all this stuff's been done. People, other people have, other writers have perfected it. But as I was saying, you know, at the outset, when you were asking what this book's about, this was just me going in a, you know, evolving. I've said that many a time. My favorite authors have a tendency, authors, artists, recording artists, they have a tendency uh, to either do one thing and do it really, really well and become sort of iconic, sort of the Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood is always Clint Eastwood. There's certain actors, Al Pacino, no matter who he is, Al Pacino is still Al Pacino. You're ready for him to bust out with a hoo-ha. But other, and, you know, and, then you've got your, and then you've got your really big bands that never needed to change. You know, if you look at music, they just, you know, the Rolling Stones, they did a little bit of, they, they did some stuff in the 80s, but pretty much the Rolling Stones are living on the 60s and 70s. And it's still gigantic. I really feel, though, that for for a lot of us to you know to especially if you don't have iconic status, part of part of what you do to survive is to continue to evolve, to continue to swim forward. You don't just you know. I have a lot of fans who like the the material in the first three books, and I've written novellas since then. I've written a few standalone stories that have not been collected that are in that cosmic horror Lovecraftian mode. And this for eyes. Absolutely, and I, which is a weird take on it, but I plan on doing a lot more of that. I don't plan. There was a time where I said I'd probably get away from it. Nah, I think what what will actually what seems to be happening is I seem to be just doing more things. It, it's sort of coming back to that and then going and then and then branching out again. But when it comes to when it comes to collecting my work and creating the, you know these books, I what I foresee for the next few years is to continue in the direction, more Jessica May stories, more of this giallo psychological horror, uh, more just weird fiction as opposed to, and, 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 and weird takes on horror rather than Lovecraftian fiction. And it's not because I'm tired of writing it or I think that there's any problem with doing it. It's just that uh, commercially and, and artistically, I have, I have a couple masters to satisfy there. I have to, write stuff that sells so I can continue to write, but I also have to write things that interest me or I might as well just go be a plumber and, <laughs> you know, or do, like I said, that's the, do construction like I did for many years or go back to fishing or something like that, you know, blue collar work. Uh, so, so part of what's going on with, with, with Swift to Chase and with the ones that are coming down the pike, I'm just doing, you know, I'm not satisfied 
uh, you know, I've established myself in the Lovecraftian, you know, I, I did a good job with Lovecraftian and cosmic horror and that still has a beating heart. It's still over here. I'm going to continue to add to that part of the bibliography as time goes on because I constantly, I, I get inundated with offers to do Lovecraftian anthologies and comics and all, and all that stuff. And so the opportunities, and I'm very fortunate that the opportunities are coming in, but I really want to dive deeper into uh, what has actually was a greater love of mine all along, which is crime and noir and just, you know, some science fiction. Uh, I'm working on a Baroque fantasy series. So basically just, you know, expanding what I've been doing into, in, into new areas uh, for me. That's great. And I'm just going to do this right now. And now a break for our sponsors. Brought to you with consideration by Birds of a Feather Coffee Company. Birds of a Feather. If you are a morning lark, a decaf hummingbird, or a night owl like me, migrate the flock over to birdscoffeecompany.com. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company has a brew for every birdie. Available now, birdscoffeecompany.com. But yes, uh, learning and expanding and growing as an author. Um, if I might ask you about some parts of your creative process, would that be okay? Sure. Okay, great. Uh, time management and goal setting. How would you approach these two things in writing full time? How, how do you keep from getting off track? I uh, <clears throat> money. You know, having money to cover uh, the light bill is a really and food is a really great motivator. Knowing yes. that if I don't bring in money. Uh, uh, because writing is my sole income at this point, and it has been for a few years now. Uh, and like I've, I've said before, I'm, I'm at this, I'm at this stage in my career where I'm just popular enough that I'm inundated with offers, and so I'm working nonstop. But I'm not quite at the level where I can write a novel every couple of years and go, huh, you know, I work a few hours a day on my novel. Uh, I'm very, very close, very close to that. So. What motivates me and keeps me from getting off track is just simply the, the, the realization that uh, I don't have any other money coming in. And so I get up and I, I sit down and I write. Um, burnout's much more of a, of a worry for me, exhaustion. Because I, in the last five years, you know, in, the first, in the first 10 years, uh, I, had a day, I had a day job actually for the first eight or, or nine years. Of, so until, until about 2008, 2009, I had a day job. I started publishing in 2000, 2001. And so I always had that safety net. And so I would come home and be exhausted from my day job. And if I didn't write, I didn't write. I always wrote something. But back in those days, I would work on a story for eight months to a year. These days, I don't have that luxury. And I was. I was very worried when I, when I made the switch to writing full time, you know, Oh gosh, you know I can't, but I can't do this one year. You know I can't just belabor a story for six months. I have to do it and move on mm -hmm. to the next thing. And like I said, living really close to the edge has <laughs> financially is is proven to be all the motivator I need. Uh, and because I write okay. full time, I have all the time, you know, to to, to do it. Um, I'm guessing from the timing that you had said that you started working full time, it seems that that had coincided with the point in time that the economy absolutely had tanked. Yes, that was a terrifying moment. Um, 
I actually had had quit my day job and started writing full time, and then I had an upheaval, domestic upheaval, and I moved out of Washington State and uh, traveled. I live on the East Coast now. Actually, I'm talking, I'm speaking to you from the Mid Hudson Valley, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful little. Um, it's not. It's not isolated, but it's rural. It's outside of a small village between Kingston and New Paltz, and it's dairy dairy country, and I can see the Catskills not too far out the window. Yeah. And uh, but what happened is I just it was a it was it was a terrifying couple of years. I rented a room from a a, a, a family that I'm very good friends with, the Langan family. Uh, I'm, I don't know if you've read John Langan, but he he wrote The Fisherman uh, last mm-hmm. year. Everybody's talking about it. Really great writer. So I rented a room from them, and I, I just locked myself in there. And as I was alluding to at the begin, just a minute ago, I went from having written ten or twelve stories over an eight nine year period. Over the last five years, I've written four novel, three novels, four novels, and four collections. So I've written yes, I've, I've written and sold about seven hundred fifty thousand words in the last six years. So to put it in that perspective, going from in my first eight nine years. 80 to 100,000 words. And it's just the difference is I just, this is what I do now. This is all I do, uh, sometimes to my detriment. But the, you know, I looked up at the bibliography the other day and it's much longer than it used to be. And (laughs) I write write a lot of essays. I I worked for Locus for a while. So my CV now includes a lot of essays. Um, I've written about 40 essays, a bunch of reviews. Because uh, I have two two novels coming out soon, I've, I've sold a couple other or I've published a couple other novels. So it's been mm-hmm. since 2011. It's been a really kind of an avalanche of work for me. I've just I just put my head down and and I you know every now and then I I up Periscope to see where I am. Yeah. So. So you said you have two novels upcoming. Can you tell us anything about this? I can. I'm, I can tell you about the first one, and briefly, um, the, the working title is Blood Standard, and it was purchased uh, by Sarah Minnick, uh, who's a senior editor over at GP Putnam Sons, uh, and it is uh, a story about a, um, a man named Isaiah Coleridge, who has been a enforcer for the, uh, the, Alaska, the, the Alaska outposts of the Mafia. And he basically commits a faux pas. I won't get into what happens, but he, he commits a faux pas and is exiled from Alaska. And instead of being killed, some strings are pulled and he's allowed to, he's not a, he's not a made man. He's just sort of a, a very close associate of, of the organization. So they, they, they let him slide basically with the, you know, with the word don't come back. And so he's here in the East, he's here in the Hudson Valley and he's um, trying to, uh, trying to go straight and he becomes involved in a mystery of a missing girl. Basically it's a race against time trying to find this, this young woman who has gone missing. And instead of using, he's not a PI. So he uses his underworld connections to try to uh, unravel this mystery. And it's the first in, like I said, it's a two book deal. So there's at least two. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I wish you all of the success. And I have a feeling if it's anything like Swift to Chase, um, no wishing is involved. It's all skill <laughs> at this point. Well, the one thing I would say about it to my fans who are watching this, you know, obviously people are, it's going to reach a different audience because of Putnam mm-hmm. and because of how they're, <clears throat> how they're going to market it. 
I'm sure they're going to market it as a noir crime novel. Um, but for my for my horror fans, it, it's it's definitely not a horror novel, but it is exceedingly. You won't be disappointed if you won't be disappointed if you like horror fiction though, because it's very dark, and it contains some of the signature the signature sort of beats that I that I've always placed in my stories. I, the one thing is that most of my stories are as much crime or noir as they are uh, horror stories. There's always been a very strong undercurrent of other genres, Western, men's adventure, whatever, pulp, pulp, pulp adventure, go, kind of permeating these stories. This one, it's just, there's no supernatural element, but it's a very dark story. And I remember they were asking me, they said, well, what, how'd you come up with the idea for this story? And I said, it's nothing to do with Pulp Fiction, but there's a scene in Pulp Fiction where Jules, one of the assassins, or one of the hitmen, says, I'm going straight. I'm giving this up. He gives he gives all the money in his wallet to Ringo, and he says, I'm going to walk the earth. And I remember I said to one of my friends here a few years ago, I said, whatever happened to him? Why didn't Quentin Tarantino do a novel about him or a movie about him or whatever? And, and so my thesis for this novel was, well, what, what would Jules have? And obviously, this guy in the story has nothing to do with that. But it got me thinking, whatever happened to him? What happens to a guy like that after the cameras, you know, after that story ends? What happens to him next? And I sort of try to answer that question. What happens to a guy after he leaves the organization and is sort of adrift, trying to, trying to reconcile sort of the bestial nature with, okay, I'm going to be the shepherd and not the, and not the wolf. Which has got to be trying at times. I'm guessing. I I tried to do I tried to write something that isn't you know there's a lot of there's already a lot of fiction out there where the where the where the hero the the protagonist you know because there's plenty of stories about reformed hitman or or hard boiled you know ex whatever ex military but usually they're it's pretty cut and dried and they're fairly I don't want to say they're all Marty Stews but they're they're pretty good at everything and they've got hearts of gold and all this, or they go the other way and the guy's a bad guy, just a repentant bad guy. And you're sort of just sort of following his adventures. This really is a struggle. This guy really is. I don't want to say he has a heart of gold because I think that might be wrong, but he's not your, he's not your typical protagonist that is walking this path. This is, I tried to, I tried to humanize him and naturalize him in a way that, satisfies the sort of satisfies the expectations of this kind of a, a narrative but also takes it into deeper darker territory and as the series goes on i think I, i'm going to have a lot of fun uh sort of inverting and subverting people's expectations for how this kind of a narrative is supposed to proceed so we'll see like and i i have a feeling that it's going to be successful so anyway, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, before I forget, Mike Davis asks, smooth or crunchy? I'm sorry, what was that? Mike Davis of the Lovecraft Easing asks, smooth or crunchy? I'm supposed to ask you <laughs> that question. I have, no, I have no idea what that means, but crunchy. Okay. Crunchy. Okay, excellent. So. So that that's the that's the only only message I think that I've gotten to relay <laughs> to you today. Um, oh gosh, uh, what was I going to say? Um, have you wait video games as a creative genre? Um, 
have you been asked to create any type of storylines or content for those? I almost, yes, a few years ago, I was approached. Uh, and every now and then I am approached, I, but I haven't jumped into it or, or, or done it. Uh, I think I'm going to be involved. I would like to be involved in creating uh, for graphic novels, for sure. But on the subject of video games, I love them. I don't have, and I have dozens and dozens of video games. I've collected video games for 20 years now. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the, it's it's my vice. You know, I do drink a little bit, but pretty much socially. So I don't spend a lot, I don't smoke. So uh, I don't have a Jag. I don't have, I don't have the midlife crisis where I spend a lot of money on toys. But I love, I love video games. And one of the ways that I do unwind and reward myself is by, is by playing uh, various types of video games. And I don't know when the time will come, but I would not be, I would, I would certainly not say, uh, dismiss out of hand the idea of writing for uh, a company at some point. It's just that I realized how that's a giant commitment. One of my dear friends and one of my oldest uh, writing colleagues, uh, Mark Laidlaw, he wrote half, uh, he was a major writer, one of the lead writers on Half-Life. And he worked for Valve for a long time. And I realized, you know, he had to basically set aside his, you know, what he, because he'd been writing novels prior to that and whatnot. He set that aside to, to devote himself to writing for Valve. And I suppose there's probably a middle ground, but I've already been working with screenplays. And I think that there's, for me, I can, I can, I can shift between writing a science fiction story and a, and a Western or a horror story and something like a, like a, an essay, I can shift between poetry and novels, but I found out that I cannot shift successfully between uh, the brain space of writing a uh, script, for example, and shifting back to writing regular prose. My, I have to have a few days. And so I cannot work like right now. I'm working on six things. I'm working on essays. I'm working on, uh, various linked stories I'm working on the next novel and I'm ha not having a problem jumping around doing that my agent you know periodically says hey man send me a send me a screenplay you know we have people that are just looking at screenplays for me type of thing and I, I can never get around to doing it because that means I would have to stop writing all this other stuff to focus on that I've tried I've tried to juggle and I can't do it and I suspect that depending on what level I was writing at that it'd be very similar for me working with uh, video game. So if I do it, it'll have to be a, a situation where if if this Coleridge series takes off and I have much more time. Right now, I just have absolutely no time. I'm working 12, 14 hours a day trying to get all these different projects done. If I, if I were to sell, start selling novels, though, for, you know, for good money, then what would happen is I would go back down to a six to eight hour day. And then maybe I would have time to do, you know, to explore and take a chance and try something different. Wow. Um, now, you said you had six different things going on at a time. Now, when you arrange your day, uh, do you do uh, like a four-hour block for this, four-hour block for that, da-da-da, break for lunch, da-da-da, and on to the next thing? Or do you just do it one day at a time to each project? Generally, I have a couple projects that I'm, work that I'm working on, and that's what I'm supposed to be working on. But then I'll start getting behind on other things. That's part of the problem is I, I'm, it's been terrible though this last eight months or so as I, I keep sliding farther behind on things. And I haven't been taking new stuff on, but I didn't draw the line. I didn't draw the line. This is, this is my fault. I didn't draw the line in the sand soon enough. And stuff that, I mean, I promised stuff two years ago that is, you know, and then all of a sudden now it's due. 
And so what, mm. what my schedule tends to be is who's, who's, who's yelling at me the loudest. <laughs> better finish this. But, um, no, I, I, I usually have, I, you know, I have an idea for a story and I have it and who it's going to be for, and that's what I'm working on. And then what will happen is, is I'll keep a couple of those going and then I'll keep a couple nonfiction projects going. And then some emergency, like right now there's emergencies sprouting, you know, that are developing and I'm working on those too. But generally speaking, I, I simply write on one or two things during the day. I, like, I'll, I'll focus on something and try to get it done. But the advantage to having other things going is if I get come to a rough spot, like say in the novel, and I'm just treading water, I could just set it aside and work on it. Okay, here's one of the three things, other things that I have to do. And if I'm blocked on this or can't, you know, my mind needs time, my brain, my, my subconscious needs time to work it out. The quickest, the quickest way to solve something is to not think about it or look or to look at it anymore. For me, it's to move on to something else. And much of the time, it'll it'll click. When I should be doing this thing, I'll do my best work writing something else. And uh, so that's that's one way to make. Uh, make lemonade out of lemons of having too much having too much stuff no i i ask that because i myself am kind of stuck on on an item that i need to do and that due date is looming ever mm -hmm. closer and it's like i know i need to write on this and i haven't yet so there's a there's a graph it's like you know like it's like the deadlines over here and you start and there's the green bar and it goes all the work is done it's like about an a quarter of an inch from the end that's when this all the work done while crying it's all done right here i'm not that bad it, it feels like that see that's the reason i i was i mentioned up periscope occasionally is because i never feel like i get anything done i'm at this point where it used to be i would send out you know this is where we all i think most of us begin you send stuff out and pray that somebody answers then after a while, if you're lucky, you get an, you get a rapport with an editor or a publisher, and you start sending them stuff. And it's it may not be a hundred percent, but if you send them stuff, you usually get published. And then if you're really lucky, you've got three or four. Then, if your career continues, you get to the point where it's oh no, I have a few editors and publishers, and there's all, and then they start contacting you, going, hey, we're going to do an anthology. We're not promising you, but we'll we'd love to look at something. And then if you're really, really lucky, you get to the point where some publishers like, no, just please send me something. You know, I need to buy something from you. I would love to see, we haven't published anything by you in a few years, please send us. And, you know, so it's basically commission work. Uh, as long as you don't, you know, as long as you send them something that's decent and it's within the parameters, you know, you, you pretty much have a sale with some, with some people. But, um, you know, the, but in my situation, I've just gotten to the point where you know, it's just, you, you, there's a risk of taking on way too much stuff. And part of that is just when you're writing for, for a living, you don't have the luxury of, of saying no to, to, to as many things as you'd like to say no to. Not because they're not worthy uh, publications or projects, but just because I, there's just one me. I don't have, you know, I need, I need uh, old Michael Keaton to like multiply me. So there's a few, few of me working on something at one time. But, you know, it's just sort of the way that, you know, to one degree or another, uh, professional writing careers seem to kind of follow some sort of a similar track like this. You start in one place and you kind of, you kind of end up, you know, over here. And I think one of the most interesting things that I've heard recently, John Lang and he, he, he's an adjunct at SUNY New Paltz. And he said, we teach, we constantly teach people, you know, how to prepare themselves for failure. 
you know, if you fail, it's okay. Resend it. You know, here's all the markets. He goes, we never teach anybody about success, what to do with success. And I would say to a new, you know, new writers who are, who are fault, you know, and, and this is not to discourage you, but it's just, if you, if you become successful, you're going to encounter a whole new set of, of, of problems. Your problems don't go away. They simply, and your worries don't go away. They simply change. Uh, you know, and it's a, it's a good problem to have, but it's just, it's something to be aware of is that there's a whole new set of parameters that you're, you're operating within if you start selling and depending on how much you're selling and, and, and uh, whether you're doing it full time or not. I, I can understand that. Cause I mean, it's like, I've, I've had, I've had, oh gosh, I've only submitted four. I've had three rejections. And the last rejection was kind of weird because I got good feedback with it, and it was great. Um, so anyway, um, not all rejections are bad things. Um, let's see. What else was I going to say? Was there anything else that you would like to add, Laird? Um, I was going to bring up something from your past, but I didn't know if you wanted to really speak about your past today or your background. Oh, go ahead. If I don't um, want to answer it, I'll just say no comment. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I mean, I've seen this in interviews in the past. You, uh, It's been brought up that you have participated in the Iditarod, but... It was it was not mentioned that uh, that you came in third. Oh, I never I never came in third in the Iditarod. What? No. Nope. No. Oh my gosh! In the youth division. Oh, um, I raced a race called the Junior Iditarod. Yeah. And I got third. I'm yes. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but also right, was right. was that your brother James? Jason, yes. Uh, Jason, oh, okay, great. Jason, um, he's he holds the record in our family for the highest finish. He made, uh, I believe, he got seventh or eighth place a few years ago. It's top ten. Top ten is very is very. That's an elite. I did I did fine. I was you know I, I finished twenty first or twenty second one year, um, but my brother, but my brother really deserves the distinction. He he finished seventh. He was in the top ten once or twice. The top twenty several times. He was very. Uh, I only. I only. I raced it three times back in the nineties, and, and then got away from it. My brother, I'm trying to think, he's raced it. He's out of it. He's out of it now. He's retired, but um, raising kids and, and all that kind of stuff. But I believe he's. I believe he's raced the race nine or ten times, something like that. Quite, quite a few. Oh wow! So now in the junior division, did what did you have to feed your dogs? Oh, was, were there any specific rules about that? There's a lot, yeah. The race, like with the salmon, and and did they you have to? They don't tell you what to feed them. I mean, there's there's rules about carrying X amount of. You have to carry a certain amount of dog food and always have it with you, and so you'll see a lot of safety stuff. Uh, no, I but I did. I fed the dog salmon, and there's also um, we used to feed them some um, some uh, kibble, but it was a high it was a high performance like really, really expensive and really elite kind of um, dog food that you wouldn't feed a pet. But um, you only feed, feed you know, working animals, endurance animals. But yeah, we feed them a mixture of that, uh, fish oil, fish, lamb, you know, it's all kinds of, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And that race is much shorter. That race is an overnight race. It's about 75, 80 miles each way. 
That's still a really long distance. It's a ways. It's a ways. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when you were a kid, you know, I raced, I started racing that when I was 14. So, so in my last year I was turning 18 after the race and I, I got third and, and then I raced the Iditarod uh, three times. And you know, the funny thing is though, outside of the one I talked about before, you know, I, I almost died in a blizzard one year on the Iditarod, but, but generally speaking, most of my adventures and the adventures of my family always happened never happened during the big race. It was always many, many tens of thousands of miles I spent training for those for those races over the years. In a lot of ways, running sled dogs and, and not racing, but tra just traveling with the team and, and training them because you get up every day and you train. I split my team into two, uh, kennel into two teams and I would get up in the morning and take one team out for six hours and then have a break and take the other team out for five or six hours. And, um, and then sometimes go on overnight or even or even like two night camping trips with them. I started doing that when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, but I, I felt like it prepared me to be pretty tough headed as a writer because writing is all about being alone with your, alone with your, with your thoughts and, um, and sort of processing, you know, instead of just zoning out in the back of the, the runners, I used to, and I think anybody who's been a farmer and sat in a tractor all day long has probably experienced it is you just sort of, it becomes there's a certain monot there's a certain monotonous kind of aura about it, but you can but you can you can do something productive with that. And so I used to write when I was running my dogs. I would actually uh, be creating stories. And I find that the discipline of getting up every day and going out, even when we were all very bored, because it wasn't physically demanding. It's just simply you just need to keep in a certain rhythm. Every you know, once once your the team is tough and once you're kind of toughened to a certain degree. It's just you want to maintain that. You're not actually trying to, to go out and break yourself, you or the dogs, down every day. It's more you're just keeping yourself in a condition. And, and so it has a tendency to really be a grind mentally sometimes. And I found that really translated, uh, you know, I'm not sniffing. The dogs are always, like, chasing moose and sniffing the trail and, and doing that kind of stuff, very much in tune with their environment as a, as a, as a lowly man you know, with very limited sensory abilities uh, and input, you know, I had my thoughts to turn to. And I, I don't know, I, I really think in a very weird kind of morbid way that really um, those many boring, you know, hundreds if not thousands of hours of sort of mind-numbing boredom uh, when something exciting wasn't happening translated to being able to uh, <clears throat> kind of harness that discipline to write and write consistently. Because that's, that's one of the secrets of writing professionally is, writing all the time. And I know that's a, it shouldn't be, but it is a bit of a controversy. People feel guilty if they're, if, if you say you should write all the time, because a lot of people can't. They have kids. I'm your brother. My brother wants to write all the time. He cannot because he's got a roofing business and he's got three kids. But the fact of the matter is one of the, one of the, you know, unless you hit a jackpot and you write a novel every few years and you can live off that, you know, off the royalties, you, you, if you're a writer and you, and you write professionally, you survive by turning in material. And one of the only ways I can think of to turn in material is to sit down and produce it. And so, not speaking really for anybody else, but just for me, I, I feel like my early experiences that had really nothing intuitively to do with writing actually translated into being a much more successful uh, writer, at least professionally speaking. Yeah. But so basically, it was that ability to to just turn within, yep. and 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 find that there within yourself. 
uh, that that helps with the generating content or just with the with the ability to keep your nose to the grindstone. I think so to speak. To both. Um, we'll go back to John Langan for a second. John Langan once told a class. I, I sat in. I basically audited some of his his writing classes, and one time, and one of the things he said that just blew me away. He said, "Because people constantly talk about, well, I didn't race the Iditarod, or I wasn't a Marine. I wasn't, you know, I, what are my life experiences? They're not exciting." And John said, "You know, if you if you're lucky to have life experiences, that just gives you a leg up. That's you know, if you have an exciting background, you can put that to use." But he says everybody has stories, and everybody can co-opt other stories. Everybody can go out and get. You know, and, and come up with stories, but his thing, his thing that was really a, a genius observation was that young writers, especially, have a tendency to dismiss the subconscious. The sub, he says the subconscious is like an exuberant little puppy, and the puppy is constantly going out and digging up things and bringing them back to you for your approval. And if you're constantly like, "Oh, those are dirty socks. I wanted a, I wanted a shoe," oh. You brought me an old moldy bone. I was hoping for a crowbar. I wanted a, a body or something. You know, if you constantly dismiss your subconscious, it'll stop bringing you things. He says, what you have to do is you have to reward it constantly to say, well, I'm not really in the market for this moldering uh, this moldering uh, shoe, but thank you very much. For, we'll see what else you can find. I'm going to put this over here. And you don't you don't dismiss it out of hand. And so there, there's, there's that. Uh, when I was churning you know, uh, mentally when I was running dogs, very naively, very innocently, I didn't know what I should be throwing away. And so I had a tendency to come home and write down anything I thought of. And so when John said that, I realized that I had been doing it just intuitively, I, that I had never, because we were, you know, I was raised in the woods and uh, didn't do writing workshops uh, later on. And so there was a sort of a, you know, sort of an innocence about how I got into the business. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do certain things. I just naively went out mm -hmm. and just did what I wanted. I was exuberant. I was the puppy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's that aspect of it. The other aspect though is, and this is probably the more practical, practical aspect is yes, you can transfer one set of skills to another area. And basically it wasn't the hours of boredom of going up the same stretch of river every day. It's the same thing that a marathon runner does. They run that same track every day. It's the same thing an Olympic swimmer does. They swim that same. I mean, how boring is it for an Olympic swimmer to do those 100 laps every effing day? But what do they all have in common? They do it. And the more you do it, the more you will do it. It becomes it becomes ingrained. You know, it's like politeness. Ambrose Beer says something to the effect of politeness is the only um, acceptable form of hypocrisy that basically doesn't matter whether you're really a hard-headed disciplined person if you fake it long enough you will make it it will it will it will some of it will stick to you so um, yeah it's your not. words your words give me hope really about the what not to do and you did it anyway um, it reminds me of my first submission which was absolutely horrible and, and, I'm, and I'm so sorry, Molly, for, for sending that to you four years ago or whatever, um, to Molly and Jesse Bullington, Molly Tanzer and Jesse yes. Bullington for Swords vs. Cthulhu. It was awful. I saw something in the call about, you know, what about that AD&D campaign you wrote when you were in high school or something? And I was like, oh, this is going to be filthy. It's going to be 
and it was. And of course it got rejected and that's okay because it will never see the light of day again. Um, but yeah, that, that gives me a great deal of hope Laird, for the, for the just right what's there. And, and I did, I had no idea what to do. Um, but I, yeah. I believe in that. I, I believe, <clears throat> I believe in arming yourself with as much information as possible. <laughs> I, I believe that the rules, that there are good rules. I think it's good to know the rules, the old cliche, know them, then you can break them. But I, good writing out, and part, and part of good writing is also knowing when to send it, where to send it, and maybe being a little bit lucky. But you really, ultimately, you, you have to write, you have to write what entertaining, you know, we said, we were talking about this a little while ago, I could still just be fishing, I could still, I could still, not to say running dogs, because that's, that's about as a money losing a proposition as being an author. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that I could be doing a lot of other things. If I, if I, if I invest the amount of energy and, and time uh, into being a plumber or an electrician or something like that, a good solid blue collar job. I've worked in education. If I would have just said, you know what, I love, this is my passion. Monetarily, I would be, you know, I would be sitting on a pile of money compared to what I am. So you don't, it's not about, you know, if it's not about, it's not just about money though. It has to be about something that drive that, that motivates you, you know, and there's, there's always the compromise, you know, because we, because if you're simply interested in art, it doesn't matter whether you ever get published. There's nothing wrong with the stack of poems in your in your dresser drawer. There is nothing wrong with the seven. You know, when you pass away and they find, you know, the seven or eight unpublished novels that you had no interest in sending out. There's nothing. There is nothing lesser about those books uh, compared to if, if that person would have would have sent them out and, and got them published. But if we're talking and, and generally. I assume that I'm talking to people who are interested when we talk about writing craft, that I'm talking <clears throat> to an audience that's interested in either doing it themselves or, or the reality of it, of being a professional writer. And the bottom line is for a professional writer, for me, there's a compromise between art and commerce. I have to sell stuff. I have to write stuff that other people want to read in sufficient numbers to allow me to write more stuff that my numbers get bigger. And I get, but on the other hand, if all I cared about was simply, uh, lowest common denominator writing that I could crank out by the bushel, you know, for me, it's not interesting and, and I might as well, there's a lot of other things that pay better uh, if you're just going to do it in a workmanlike fashion. And so for me, it's always the dance. And I think for most of my colleagues, uh, especially in weird fiction uh, and horror, it's, it's kind of that, it's kind of that, that line that we're all walking that everybody wants to be true to their kind of be true to their identity uh, as a writer and as a person, but also not write stuff that's so esoteric that no one, that no one's interested in it. You know, they want to be published. And on that note, there's one other thing I wanted to say is um, one of the greatest, you know, one, one of the greatest uh, bits of nourishment that I receive as an author, even though I'm, you know, I'm a little bit reclusive. I don't go out to a lot of stuff these days and I'm kind of changing the keyboard. And I, I've kind of backed away from social media just for my own sanity, especially since the elections and all that. I just, I, I, I follow stuff, but I'm not engaging directly like I have been. I'm, I'm trying to, I just don't have enough spoons, as they say right now, to get everything done and, and fight and fight uh, with people. But I will say this, the, the bread and water sustenance, I receive in vast quantities from my fellow raiders. And I don't mean uh, encouragement because we, the, the weird fiction horror community is really encouraging. Uh, 
I can't speak to the other communities one way or the other, but I know that this community, despite its schisms, despite despite the battles that break out, there's always factions and whatnot, but it's a really a warm and welcoming community, but that's not what I'm talking about. I take sustenance whenever I pick up a Stephen Graham Jones collection or novel and just see how brilliant this man is. Or I read John Langan or I read Paul Tremblay or Livia Llewellyn, Karen Warren. There's just, I could go on, there's a litany of names, S.P. Miskowski, Gemma Files, you know, and they all, they're all working in the, uh, the weird fiction sort of end of the spectrum. And yet, and then there's touchstones, you know, there are things that I recognize that happened in the various stories that are kind of like, you know, symbolic of the genre per se, but each one is doing something so completely different. You know, you, if you read it, if you read Karen Warren and she does a lot of you know weird fiction and horror melded with crime, uh, if you read her, a collection by her, and then you turn around and you read a collection by Livia Llewellyn, which is this very dangerous and 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 dark and and kind of a reader indicting uh, semi erotic horror that she does. There's there is no, you can see they're of the same. They 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 both belong under the horror or uh, or in the horror or, or weird fiction spectrum, but they're absolutely, you know, the antipodes of each other. And then you've got over here you've got Paul Tremblay and John Lang and John Lang is a major traditionalist and Paul Tremblay is a postmodernist and you've got Nick Ramatos who is um, very much uh, he wears the beat influence you know on his sleeve he's a Buk- I mean Bukowski is all over is all over his sleeve so I I gain a lot of strength from reading these writers and at turns being entertained by them and other times being really challenged by them. Um, I read something, for example, by Stephen Graham Jones, and I say, I've got to do better. I've been doing great, but I've got to, you know, I, I wrote something I'm so proud of, and I'll read something by him, and I'll say, yeah, it's time to up my game. And not comp- not like in a, not like I'm going to beat him. Not No, no, no. It's more like it was a challenge to myself. Like, you know what, you, look what he's doing. You can, you can do better. And I, I think that that is something that, um, you know, I think that's something that we could all in our various communities, I think that is something that's open to all of us, whether you're a graphic novelist or whether you're a singer or whether you write crime fiction, you know, you take the competitive nature of everybody trying to get into that same anthology or sell that novel and realize that that's kind of a, ter- a tertiary concern and that really what's going on is, is you have a wealth of resources around you. It, you, can, you basically have school, graduate school going on all the time if you know where to look yes and and thank you so much for uh i i followed you on facebook for some time and i believe we did have a discussion about this thank you so much for recommending um blood meridian and cormac mccarthy that that just immediately shot up to the top of of my list of yes this is the definition for me uh, I mean, there were just some moments in that prose where it it was just so earth shattering and and just so intimate. I mean, not just necessarily in Blood Meridian, but there were pieces of oh gosh, what was it? It was a snapshot in uh, Child of God, I think it was. Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, it was just so intimate. It, it's where you would just stop and have to reread stop have to reread again and and just the mental pictures 
the, the power of, it just really is a testament to the power of words. Um, but anyway, before I go on too much, um, I was going to break into something. Um, let's see. So you've already, you pretty much answered this question of video game versus tabletop and with the video games. So what would be on your list for video games? What are you currently playing when you have the chance to do so? Before I say, I, I, I want to get in there that I do love tabletop. I haven't played in years and years, but I played D&D many a time. And so I, I love that stuff. Um, matter of fact, if, if I do any gaming kind of material, I, I, have, I have been thinking about actually creating a setting, a D&D style setting. But once again, it's on that list of things to do after I write my next five novels, everything. Um, games that I like. I like role-playing games. I like the Elder Scrolls series, uh, like Skyrim, Morrowind, uh, Oblivion. I love those. I'm a big fan of Larian Studios. They do the Divinity series. Uh -huh. uh, yes. Divine Divinity is one of my favorite games. Um, and they have a new, basically a new trilogy. It looks like a trilogy of games coming out. It's the um, Divinity Original Sin series, which is an RPG. Yes. Brilliant stuff. I, I love it. That. When I, I, I'm a big, actually, one thing I've been playing when I, to reward myself is I've gone back and I've modded the living hell out of Diablo 2. And so, uh, I, I have Median XL Ultimative on there, which completely redoes the game. And so, it's kind of funny. I don't have, I don't have time to play RPGs right now because it, it requires following a plot, and sort of immersing yourself in it. You know, when I, when I play an Elder Scrolls game, I am that red guard that's exploring the cave, and I want to get to the bottom of this mystery of this town. And so right now I don't have, a, I don't have the mental energy to basically invest myself in that. So but when I have that, because I take at least an hour a day to go, I'm, I'm not doing anything else, I'm going to sit down and play. And right now I'm playing things that I can drop instantly that don't require any kind of, I think I'd actually be writing while I'm doing it, because the, the thinking that's, that's involved is more... Well, if I craft this and that, then I can have plus 10 on my sword. That's what I'm going to go for. And so the, the other type of game that I play, uh, I love um, stra uh, historical strategy. I'm a huge fan of, like, the Total War series and the various games like um, Crusader Kings by um, – uh, uh, I'm spacing the name of the company. I'll come back to them in a second. But the point is, is those are the kind of games that I like. Uh, and I can actually play those sort of in the same way. You don't have to, I can invade the Crimea without, you know, I can bring my Roman centurions into Egypt without actually thinking about, you know, too much heavy thinking going on. It's all, it's all very surface level. Okay. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Does it have to be one or the other? Oh, oh it's I like could Marvel. make it it's more complicated. I like them both. And I'm not, I'm Dune. not saying that Dune? <laughs> Which one? So you're gonna pin me down which one I like better? Star, Star Wars, Star Wars. Okay. But, but they scratch different itches for me. Star Wars is fantasy space opera. Mm -hmm. I, I, I will say this. The one that I probably, that you, you get you here, is probably Star Wars. But I think that Star Trek has probably had a more positive effect in our lives. And so it's really, that's why it's hard for me to make that decision. Because as corny as it is, Captain Kirk had some damn good speeches that really are, if you live by some of the golden rules of, of Kirk, and especially Picard, a little less womanizing going on with Picard, um, 
you wouldn't go too far astray. You know, and I realized that some of the some of his preachy moments, you know, at the end of these shows, the monologues were, were cheesy, but nonetheless, um, pretty good moral compass uh, in, in that series, and a very positive one. And so, you know, that's why I have a that's why I have a difficulty. One really gets me in the swashbuckling, just sort of the romantic. I mean, Star Wars is very romantic. Star Trek is less romantic, and it's more it's more philosophical. It's more, it's more introspective. And I, so I feel like they both are sort of a yin yang kind of a thing. I'm not really sure if we'd be better off with one or the other. I think we're way better off with both of them because I really think that there's a, a, a balance between the two. Don't um, ask me about Marvel or DC because I like both of them. Oh, okay. My girlfriend's DC. Can't stand okay. Marvel. And she, she likes me despite the fact that uh, I'll wear a shirt that has both, you know, I have a shirt that has all the characters on it from, or a bunch of characters from both uh, companies. And she says, you can't do that. And I said, I know, <laughs> I get it. Okay, well, going into that arena, I won't ask you that question specifically. Um, if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? You know, I usually the question is posed, you know, you, you're given like three or four powers and then you pick from them. When I was a kid, it was to fly. But now that I'm older and more boring, I would, I think, I think I would have to go with the power of uh, healing. But like I said, when I was a kid, it was all about either being invisible or, or it was, or it was flying. And when I was a little older and was dealing with bullies all the time, it was, uh, it definitely was super strength was, <laughs> was on the list. But these days healing, you know, as I watch my old dog, you know, uh, she's getting very close to the, I won't say the end, but she's, you know, she's in that decline and, I've lost friends and my own health. I would have to say uh, healing. I, I think, uh, I guess it's sort of the Picard corniest, but the world could use a lot more uh, healing than people with super strength or, or super flight. And uh, if, if not for me, I sure wish if, I wish somebody out there had it. Yeah, I, I do too. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just thinking about this interview and uh, and the background that you've had with, with being in such uh, monumental, uh, just horizon to horizon landscapes. Right. Um, it, it has brought back a lot of memories for me, uh, but of times when I used to go trail riding. That used to be one of my favorites. And uh, unfortunately, as as my little meat husk has begun to fail me more and more, it's it's dropped off the map of uh, activities that I can reliably accomplish over and over again. Um, but final question, <laughs> final question uh, for for the listings that I have: uh, sci-fi or fantasy? Fantasy. Okay. Why is that? And it probably ties back into why I had to pick Star Wars over Star Trek. Mm. And of course, this is a whole can of worms because people argue about what's. But I consider, I consider Star Wars fantasy, and yeah. I think the I think the reason that I would have to say fantasy is the possibility for me. The possibilities are infinite, and fantasy can. It, it can, you know, I suppose science fiction, as Arthur C. Clarke said, you know, sufficiently advanced technology appears as magic, but magic is magic. Yeah. 
and I really have a fascination yeah. with I have a fascination with magic. I I have a fascination with the the inexplicable, and mm -hmm. I actually am depressed when we solve things. I will be depressed when we finally do capture Bigfoot, or we finally do find out that one way or another about various mysteries, Judge Crater's disappearance. I actually, part of me, I'm a human being. I want you know, absolutely you, you seek the answer. I think that's why I like horror so much, because we're, you, you're what, what's one of the what's one of the the aspects of Lovecraftian horror is you're compelled. The character is compelled to solve the mystery, even though everybody's mm -hmm. going, "No, stop! Don't go in that room." Every slasher, who's down there? You don't need to know who's down there. You need to hide with your phone. But everybody don't go to the basement. But why do people do it? Because it's 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 obviously it's um, exaggerated in film. But we all, I've caught myself doing just that very thing. Somebody was sneaking around my house years ago, and what did I do? <gasps> I went outside and was poking around, going, "Hey, who's here?" I was like, "Wait a minute, I what movie am I? I'm in a movie. I better get back inside." <laughs> so, so the thing is, is um, magic. And the thing about fantasy is, is fantasy is the fa is the father mother of of horror. Fantasy can encompass science fiction to a certain degree. I I guess not to put too fine a point on it. I just love the inexplicable. And and for me, fantasy at its core, there's human there, there there's there's a certain humanity about it. But there's also there's also a sense of the numinous that I don't get with science. Science, I'm always like, yeah, we're gonna figure it out, and and that's wonderful. It's important. But when it comes to uh, for create, you know, for the arts, um, fantasy is always going to be something that is ma for me is magical in a literal sense of the word. And the, and that's so true with Star Wars. Yeah, that's that's one thing that that was brought up for me was that yeah that, yeah I, I see your point. It's it's definitely fantasy because yeah there is magic. You know what is the course <laughs> so. right, and that's where they went that's where so many people even not i don't know about the hardcore fans either but people who are who kind of like a little baby doesn't know what a hot plate is but if they touch it they're like the heat their hand springs back people instinctively did not like the midichlorians when when old liam neeson tries to explain what the force is everybody instantly recoiled from that don't explain mm. what the force is we don't want to know this is not star trek you know, and Star Trek in some ways has is very fa fantastical too. What the hell is it? I lived in Crystal, but the but the point is that Star 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 Trek, I mean Star Wars, really trades on that. Yeah, there's all these trappings of science fiction, but how stuff works is less important than the fact that it does. Where where in true science fiction, how stuff works is often, if not as important, it's definitely a piece of the puzzle of any, yeah. It really is important that the enterprise is capable of rerouting through the transporter beam. I mean, even though it might be hand-waving, there's still a logical progression. These things will all, all work within the context of that universe. Where Star Wars just like, eh, a battleship, an Imperial battle cruiser with a giant engine, or the Millennium Falcon all ride with the same place at the same time, roughly, or, or you can go in your little X-Wing fighter and go halfway across the universe, because nobody gives a damn. <laughs> nobody really, nobody really cares if that how that little engine, you know, is as powerful as a as a battle as, a, as an imperial battle cruisers. At least as far as how it's portrayed in the movies. What we care about it, we don't really care how the lightsaber works. We just want the drama. We like to see, you know, and we like the mystery. That's really what is powerful about about Star Wars, and and of course the romance. There's just something that fantasy really lends itself to romance, and that's one of the things that human beings are compelled by. 
Matter of fact, that, that we could do another whole show on that. I really, I'm, a, I'm big into John Lang and I uh, are very big into Japanese um, samurai epics, mm-hmm. and you know Kurosawa and guys like that. And those are romantic as hell. Those are t- tremendously romantic. These are all the manliest, manly man action pulp fiction. You know, it's noir with the, instead of with Thompson mm-hmm. machine guns, people are using katanas. But the romance, even between the, and even non, you know, non-sexual romance, just the, the, there's there's romance of a brotherhood. There's romance of collegiality. There's romance of just being out, you know, uh, in the wilderness, you know, just you and your, your tribe versus the bad guys. And I feel like Star Wars, you know, captures that. And I feel like a lot of good fiction, including some science fiction, you know, straight science fiction captures that, that essence of romance. I think that might be the core for a lot of the stuff that that's very of the stuff that is um enduring that 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 isn't just a sensation for one season or one book but that we talk about it years and years later we go you know there, there's there's some kind of romantic kind of poetic uh element to this an epic element so uh oh let's see uh what are you currently reading Oh. John Langan, S.P. Miskowski, you had said. Yeah. Actually, uh, I'm, I'm actually catching up with a bunch of stuff uh, that's, that's come out this last year. Um, I'm reading, the, the one that I have sitting on my um, reading shelf right now that I, because I didn't get, get to it when I should have, is uh, Devil's Rock by Paul Tremblay. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the major one. I've read The Fisherman in manuscript form. That's Langan's uh, novel, but I'm actually reading it for the first time as a paperback. And so those are two of the, and of course, those are two of my best friends. So I, I feel like I've, I've got to, uh, you know, I need to read, especially uh, Paul's, because I never got to read it in manuscript form. So I'm reading that. Um, uh, on my I need list, to read that one too. Oh, and I have A Collapse of Horses by Brian Evanson on my, I've, I've, I've kind of picked into it. I've got a bunch of books that I've looked at, but um, Brian Evanson's latest collection is definitely high on my list. And I haven't had a chance to read Mongrels yet. I mean, I've looked at it, so I have I have Mongrels uh, on the docket. So those are the those are the major things for now. Mostly, though, what I'm reading is lots and lots of nonfiction. I read so much nonfiction to try to um, arm myself for my various stories that are, you know, as research. And not always like the research that you think, like, okay, what's, you know, for accuracy, what kind of gun do they use this time period? But even just uh, for verisimilitude, you know, I have, I have to move characters from place to place. Um, you know, I, I'll be reading about the states that I'm writing about, even if I don't plan using any of it. You know, I have Jessica Mace right now. She's uh, in the Adirondacks. And so I've been reading about the uh, in the current story. And so I've been reading about the Adirondacks and the different the different um, flora and fauna that you can find there. Like what kind of trees? Some of it I might talk about, but probably not much of it. But you never know though how that's going to inform like you know inform something that you do later. So I'm constantly researching and I'm constantly making notes about that stuff. And it takes up a a significant amount of my reading time. I must say. See, I've uh, I, I've gotten into the habit of listening to audiobooks while I do just chores around the house, while I mop the floor, while I do the laundry, while I fold the laundry, I'll put it away. Um, so yeah, uh, one one that it, I had done something like that with uh, Dead Run, I think it's called. It's a true crime story, but the uh, the setting for it 
just absolutely gorgeous. It's right around the Four Corners area. Who, so. uh, who wrote this or who's writing? Oops. Oh gosh, I'm gonna have to look that up. Oh, I don't I, need to. It's, it's okay. Ted Run, The Murder of a Lawman and the Greatest Manhunt of the Modern American West. Hmm. Um, let's see, who did? Dan Schultz huh. was the author. And it's it's a really, really interesting listen. All right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it would be a great read, but uh, but that's that's just I've I've found that listening is is the easiest way to get things done while I do other things. Actually, since we're on this, I do have a couple. Um, they're not out yet, but um, I had the pleasure of doing uh, three or two introductions recently and one last year. So one is out. Uh, Nick Kaufman, Nicholas Kaufman, uh, wrote a story or a, it's a short novel called uh, The Shadow of the Axe. And I wrote the intro to that. I originally read that many years ago uh, when he was working on it as a manuscript, and then he's done. He kind of set it aside, and then he he rewrote it and and just sold it, and it's really great. It's it's kind of a homage to Vincent Price, uh, Hammer, Amicus films, kind of horror uh, in novel form. So that's wonderful. I recommend it. But there are two short story collections coming out uh, in this next few months, and I think they're must-haves for horror and especially weird people who like weird fiction with their horror. One is by a, a longtime established veteran who I think more people should be reading. His name's Darren Spiegel, and it's called Cries uh, from the Static. And it's a collection of very dark and sort of elliptical um, weird fiction horror stories. Uh, and that should be out. I believe that Raw Dog Screaming Press is publishing that. It should be out in a few months. Uh, and he's, he's had other collections. He's been on the scene for a few years. I put him in the category of, um, of contemporary writers like Dan Sean, Brian Evanson, very literary. Uh, he's traveled a lot. So a lot of the stories are set in, you know, or reference Afghanistan, Iraq, Germany. He's lived in Germany. And so you get this real sort of cosmopolitan feeling. You know, he, he's from Alaska as well. I lived in Alaska for many years. Great writer, one of the great stylists of our, of our modern uh, contemporary scene. Uh, the other one is a debut collection, and it's by a gentleman named Philip Fricasi, mm -hmm. and uh, it's called Behold the Void. I had to hesitate for the for the name there for a second because he had actually gone through, as we all do, several titles. But yeah, it's called Behold the Void, and I wrote the introduction uh, for that one as well. And he's very much, um, he's a screenwriter, he, he works in Hollywood in various capacities, but he... Um, so he hasn't really been around that much, but he's just—he's sort of bursting onto the scene uh, with a few novellas that he published with a small press. This one, though, I, he's kind of like, he comes from the school of uh, Richard Matheson, Stephen King, and Ray Bradbury. There's like a, there's a Bradbury element uh, mixed with weird as hell, just this weird, like th there's a very traditional structure to his writing and kind of almost like a the golden age of horror structure to his writing, like, you're, oh, you're on very firm ground. It's, it's, it's scary, it's spooky, but you're on firm ground. And then some of his stories just, they do what good weird fiction is, they just sort of destabilize that narrative and they take the reader into different, very uncharted uh, territory. And I think that he's one of the few guys, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people that I really admire are strictly postmodernist. You know, they basically, they're either very commercial and they're very traditional mannered in their writing, or they're very postmodern, very experimental. He takes both, he takes those spheres and he, he, he smashes them together and he creates something 
I don't want to say new because other people do similar things, but it's his voice is unique. He really does a great job how he presents and how he shapes all this stuff. And I am pretty excited about this. I, as for a debut collection to get, you know, for, for me to be this excited, to, you know, Scott Nicolay a few years ago, I was really excited about his debut collection. This one is is on par with that. I, I think I think for Cossie gets narrative from his years of because I think I believe he's a script doctor. In other words, people will bring him a finished product and go no, and, and, and you know, and, and and fix it. This is where the narrative has gone off the track. He understands he understands structure and narrative. I think better as well or better than anybody working right now in our neck of the woods. There are a lot of people who have this element or they have that element. He really understands narrative. And so when he brings it in, when he brings in the weird, the weird phase, you really are destabilized because you thought you were in a slasher story and now you're, you don't know where the hell you are. You're still in a slasher story, but you're, you're somewhere else. Uh, yeah. And so it's familiar to me it's, and I'm just trying to remember where from he, he published uh, a couple novellas. One was called, um, or actually one was called uh, Alter. That was the one that, and he also, he had, and I believe that came out from, uh, I want to say Dynatox, but I, I don't know if that's who it was. And then he had one more recently from Journal Stone, um, all, uh, the fragile, all the Fragile Things. Make sure I got that. That might be it. Yeah, that, that's a really. Uh, and of course I left my Kindle upstairs. <laughs> No, no, it's, I actually have it sitting here. Fragile Dreams, I'm sorry, I was getting it mixed up. That one is a, it's a, it's a, it's like a 20, 25,000 word novella. Sorry, mm -hmm. Phil, I, I bollocks the title. Yeah, Fragile Dreams, and basically that one is about a guy who survives an earthquake and a, this all happens right at the start, guy survives an earthquake and the story is told while he's trapped under the rubble. Oh, and it's, so it's, there's a lot of backstory, there's, you know, uh, there, there's other flashbacks and things like that. It's one of the oh. most, it's a, it's just a genius little story. I shouldn't say little. I just say it's little in length. It's like twenty twenty five thousand words, but it's um, it's very there's a, there's a Stephen King vibe to it. It's the kind of thing that Stephen King, when he's really doing it well, can can take. No, I'm gonna tell you a story about a guy in, or a woman in handcuffs for the next. You know, I'm gonna write a whole novel about a woman trapped in handcuffs. I'm gonna write a. You know what I mean? You you think well, what are you gonna talk about? Oh, he, he takes you places, and it's uh, you know the building shifting, and there may be something in there with them, and. It's, it's, it's well done. And so that, that's, that's been doing well. And Alter is about some horrific events at a community swimming pool. <laughs> a bunch of people are at a community swimming pool and, every, and, and things go awry. So um, I highly recommend this. You know, I wouldn't have done the, you know, I wouldn't have done the introductions to these if I didn't like them. I really, really like these, these two collections. I think, like I said, it's, it's really interesting because one is sort of a, you know, a master, somebody who's been doing this for a while, has a name, uh, and then the total newcomer, relatively speaking. And I just, it's very exciting. You know, it's a, it's exciting to see this, to see this going on and to be part of it. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time out of your evening to speak with me and to all the listeners for Legends of Tabletop. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed my time. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you, sir. Um, and have a wonderful evening. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. 
For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.